Turn to Philippians chapter 3. Once again, we're going to be reading verses 7 through 21. And the last time that I preached from this text, we focused on pressing on toward the goal. Pressing on toward the goal. This time, we're going to focus on how Paul, the Apostle Paul gives us two models. Two models of behavior. One model is a good model, and one model is, what do you think, kids? A bad model, exactly. One model is good, and one model is bad, and it is helpful that we have both sides of that to look at, to compare, to think about, to see which one we're following. It might be surprising to you that he uses himself and others like him as the good model. There's all kinds of places in Scripture where we are, where we are easily surprised, easily shocked, I think, by what appears to be... Uh, self-centeredness or self-serving or self-promotion. And yet nothing could be further from Paul's aim here when he speaks of himself being the positive model, when he calls us to imitate him and not to imitate others who are a bad model. His purpose is to be helpful, to make it concrete, because he has to give us something that we can actually look at. A model isn't helpful if we don't have any idea what it looks like. Right? How can we imitate somebody if we don't get to see them and what they're doing? Imagine if Be Like Mike was a big marketing slogan before TV, and nobody had any idea what Mike did. How could you be like him? The people in Philippi knew Paul. They knew how he acted. They knew how he behaved. And so when he puts himself forward, they know what he's talking about. On the other hand, he speaks of others that we are not to imitate because they're bad models, so bad, in fact, that he calls them enemies of the cross of Christ. Enemies of the cross of Christ. We're going to read this whole passage again. We'll get to that section at the end where he speaks of himself being a model and then of the enemies of the cross of Christ that we are not to imitate. But what I want you to see here is that even though we're just reading a portion of the third chapter in this book, Paul spends 
an awful lot of time talking about what we are pursuing. And he moves pretty quickly in this particular case over those enemies, over that bad model. Not all places in the Bible have this emphasis, this focus, but because this one does, it means something for us. And what we're to take away from the text, and that is that we are to fix our eyes on the good. We are to fix our eyes on the pure, on the holy, on the good model, and not to fix our eyes on the bad model. It's enough to know it's a bad model to know that that's not where we fix our eyes. And so Paul moves quickly over it saying, there's disaster over there. Stay away. Let's stand as I read Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 21. This is God's word. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the upward prize, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example, and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you, And now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. This is the word of the Lord, and it is eternally true.
when we read that certain men are enemies of the cross, what do you think that means, to be an enemy of the cross? Cross is a thing, right? How can you be an enemy of a thing? It's like saying, I'm an enemy of that chair. Well, kids, what do you think? How can you be the enemy of the cross? Yeah. That's right. Not believing in Jesus dying for our sins. And where did he die? On the cross, exactly. And so when Paul uses the cross here, he uses it as a, an abbreviation. Kids, do you know what abbreviation means? Yeah, Liam. To shorten something, yeah. So when he uses the word cross, he's, he's using it as a shorthand, as an abbreviation for the whole doctrine, for the whole teaching of the gospel. When he says that they're enemies of the cross of Christ, what he means is that they do not believe the gospel, that they are enemies of Jesus Christ, and that they have rejected God, ultimately. Now, this has implications for us, If we are children of God, and there are enemies of the cross of Christ, it means that they are actually enemies of us. Because we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And so if you think of Satan being an enemy of God, you realize that The way that Satan fights against God is by fighting against God's people, by trying to harm God's children. And so this ought to be a deep warning to us when it says that they are enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. We ought to have our ears perk up. We ought to be alert. We ought to recognize that that has real consequences for us. Now, who are these enemies of the cross of Christ? Well, when you go back earlier into the book of Philippians, and when you look elsewhere at Paul's writings, and you see the context of the church in Philippi and what was happening in the early church, you begin to get a picture of what is going on. You remember that earlier in the book we read of uh, certain men who were preaching the gospel out not out of love, but out of what? Do you remember? Any of you kids remember what the reason was why some men were preaching? Chapter 1, some to be sure, 
are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. So, That's one example of what's going on in the church in Philippi, in the context, recognizing that Paul is in prison. And yet, at that point, Paul does not speak of those men as being enemies of the cross of Christ. Rather, he says, but they're preaching the gospel, and so more power to them. I don't count them enemies, even though they are seeing me as an enemy, even though they are trying to hurt me, insofar as they preach the gospel, that's great. But here, he transitions to a different group, saying that there are some who are actually enemies of the cross of Christ. Well, the first description that we have in this passage of them says that They care not about heavenly things and only care about earthly things. They care not about heavenly things, but only earthly things. What does this mean? Well, <clears throat> what we have to what we have to realize is that Paul is Paul is not speaking simply of non-Christians or atheists or people who say I hate God I reject his gospel. I reject the cross. Okay? There are, there are two kinds of enemies that we see throughout the Bible. And that is one group. But there is another group that the Bible, that God in his love for us spends much more time teaching us about and that we are to be much more concerned about, and that is people who call themselves brothers. That is people who say that they are not enemies of God, but are friends of God, lovers of God, and it is this category that Paul is exhorting us primarily to beware of here. Nobody needs to be warned against the person that comes up to them and slaps them in the face, right? A warning after somebody comes up and slaps you in the face is laughable. Oh, by the way, he doesn't like you. You don't say. He's an enemy of yours. I figured, right? Isn't, that's, that's not the kind of warning that we need. What we need to be warned about is the person that comes up next to us, puts their arm around us and says, 
I'm so glad to see you. And in their other hand, they have a knife, right? That they're reaching behind and they're going to stab you in the back. And the person that warns you about that man, that warning, that warning is helpful, isn't it? That's the kind of warning that Paul is giving here to the Philippians. And he's giving us the signs that we can look for so that we know what their behavior is like, so that we can know how to be warned against them, so that we can distinguish who we're supposed to be looking at and following, modeling our behavior on. Because he's really not concerned ultimately, that the church in Philippi, or that we, are going to just suddenly start modeling our behavior on Stalin, or Hitler, or people who state directly and clearly, I hate God, I hate his commands, right? That's not That's not really a great temptation to God's people. That's not really a great danger. And yet, we are given a warning and told that there are men who are in that same category, actually, enemies of the cross of Christ, and yet that we have to beware of them, that we have to be careful not to be modeling our behavior on, and that we have to be able to distinguish and look and see which is which. Who are we supposed to be following? Who are we supposed to be modeling our behavior after? Now, what that means is that you're going to see people who claim to be Christians, who you have to say, I will not model my behavior on them because they are enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. And that is a hard thing for us to be willing to say. That is a hard judgment for us to make. You remember that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light? That's what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with the sneaky side, the lying side, the trickery of the enemy. And so what we see here is people who proclaim parts of true doctrine. What we see here is people who proclaim a mixture of truth and falsehood. A mixture that is poisonous, that is toxic to us. Why why do these people have a mixed doctrine? Why do they have mixed teaching? Well, it's because they don't care about heavenly things. They care about earthly things. And so think about 
Think about Paul. And again, the context is that he's writing this letter from where? Remember, kids? Yeah. Jail. Prison. Why is Paul in prison? What did Paul do wrong? Well, he didn't do anything wrong, right? He was preaching the gospel, and that is what caused him to be arrested. But think about what you could maybe do to follow in Paul's footsteps, but without getting thrown into jail. Now that, you you see, but without getting thrown into jail, what is that? That is focusing on thinking about earthly things rather than heavenly things, isn't it? That very addition. How can I follow after Paul, but without facing any of the trouble that he faced? How can I follow after Paul, but can I do it better so that I don't suffer the way that Paul did? Now, why would I say follow after Paul? Well, because I, all of these men who claim to be Christians are saying they're followers after Jesus Christ. An even higher model than the Apostle Paul. So we could do the same thing. We could say, how can I be a follower after Jesus Christ, but without suffering? And of course, we're told by the Apostle Paul and by Christ himself that that's impossible. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, right? Or, as Jesus says, the servant is not greater than the master. If they hated me, they will hate you too. But if your mind is fixed on the earthly things, that sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? If your concern is that you could fill your own appetite... then what exactly does claiming to be a follower of Jesus offer? Well, let's fast forward about 300 years. 300 years later, you've got Constantine, right? And for most of that time frame in between, Christians were heavily persecuted. They were were outlawed, they were murdered, they were thrown into prison, they were thrown to the lions... There was, there was serious persecution for much of that time from the top down, from the Roman Empire. Okay? But when Constantine came, something changed. What changed? Any of you brilliant children want to tell me? Yes, Ben, I see that hand. That's right. People were allowed to worship Christ without being persecuted. As a matter of fact, he went further than that. What did he do? Yeah. Made it legal, but he, but he went further than that. That's what Ben said. He actually made it the official 
religion. And suddenly, vast numbers of government flunkies were Christians. Why? Flunkies is, is, an, is a technical term, right? For all those middle management layers that have to exist in an empire the size of Rome. What, what changed? What changed was they saw some benefit to being able to say, I am a Christian. But there were people, even at the time of Paul here, that saw some benefit to being able to say, I am a Christian, I'm a follower of Christ, but without actually serving, without actually submitting themselves to, without actually being washed in the blood that happened at that cross. What sorts of benefits? Well, think about Jesus. Everywhere Jesus went and began to teach, crowds and crowds of people. So if you just want some attention, and an awful lot of people just live for having their ego stroked by getting attention, okay, that's an easy way to get attention. What other sorts of benefits might come. Well, Jesus got money from his followers, didn't he? You know, he was supported. We read in particular about certain women that were supporting him. And so, think about the the benefit that comes from that. Don't have to work hard. But there's this problem, and the problem is that if you're actually like Jesus, you might wind up dead. There's this problem that if you're actually like Paul, you're probably going to end up in prison. And so what you have to do is you have to make some strategic changes to what you're saying, to what you're teaching. And it turns out that to make those strategic changes requires you to be categorized as an enemy of the cross of Christ, according to Paul. And it is for this reason that he even weeps as he thinks of this group. It is not something that he had left out of his message to the Philippians prior to this point. It's something that he says that he had told them often. Why would you tell them often? To warn them. Remember. Remember this. Don't forget this. Remember, there are, even today, even in a time where Christians are persecuted, there are always false Christians, there are always false teachers. There are always those who are enemies of the cross of Christ who are trying to get you to follow after them. And they have a very attractive message. The message is you can have God 
You can have salvation. You can have the gospel. You can have this good news. And you can have your sin. And you can seek earthly pleasure. And you can not have any suffering or sacrifice in this life. You can have your cake and you can eat it too. You can have heaven and all earth. This is the promise that Satan made to Jesus. Simply bow down to me and worship me and I will give you all of this. You can have heaven and earth. You can have God and his approval, but without fighting your sin. And this is, this is not the gospel. This is that mix of truth and falsehood that is utterly poisonous and that is so dangerous that it needs to be warned against on a regular basis. It is no wonder that Paul tells them, even weeping, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Why? Why does he weep? He weeps for their own deluded, misled, misguided, false belief. Because remember, When Jesus speaks of the sheep and the goats being divided, he does so telling a story of how the goats who are going to be cast out into the darkness, cast into hell, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, he does not describe them as people who were already gnashing their teeth against him, but he describes them as men who say, but Lord, Lord, wait, who calls Jesus Lord? people who claim that he is their Lord. But Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? In other words, they have no knowledge of Jesus Christ, and yet they think they do. And so, yes, there is much to be sad about And the warning that Paul gives against these men is to not be like them. To not be like them. Now I think there's actually another another warning. It sounds very similar, but to not be like them is a little bit different than not to imitate them. What do I mean by that? Well, to be like them is to be walking towards destruction, right? They are enemies of the cross of Christ. And so as they walk, they are walking towards destruction rather than toward the resurrection from the dead, 
rather than gaining Christ, rather than being found in Christ, rather than having righteousness from God by faith. And these are all of the things that we read earlier in the passage that he describes as what it means to be pressing on towards the upward calling, right? And you see at that point, again, like I said at the beginning, how much time he spends describing that right path. To be like them is to be someone whose appetite is your God. Now, what does it mean to have a God? God is a word that we use a lot, right? At church, at least. But if you have a God, what does it mean to have a God? I had somebody ask me a number of weeks ago, what what exactly does idolatry mean? It can be kind of surprising sometimes how difficult it is to answer those basic questions. What does it mean to have a God? What What does idolatry mean? They're connected. That's why I bring up that second word, because to have a God is to have a greater, higher being that you serve. means that there is something that controls you, something that you are ruled by, something that you serve. And of course, if that God is not the one true God, then it is an idol, and as you give yourself in service to it, that is idolatry. So anything that you serve, anything that you are devoted to, anything that you are controlled by and ruled by that isn't God, is a false God. And it ends up being idolatry. In this case, he says that their appetite is their God. Now, that makes... As soon as you realize what a God is, it's very easy to see how appetite can be your God, isn't it? Because it's really hard to stop eating when you still have an appetite. Right? You see, when when we're hungry, we get food and we eat it until we're not hungry. That's what appetite is when we're talking about food. And yes, our food appetites can be gods to us. In fact, I think that's a sin that runs in my family. Because just like me, my daughter gets hangry before breakfast. She wakes up and she's angry because she's hungry and she wants food. And so we are very easily given over to caring about and thinking about and serving our appetites before anything else raising them up in importance above God, above spiritual things, having our earthly, fleshly desires be the thing that rules us. And so we can't be expected to love our brothers and our sisters, our husband, our wife, our neighbors, while we're hungry. Can we? 
Now, that is only one sort of appetite that we have. We have many appetites in this life. Appetite for relationship. Appetite for affirmation, for approval. We have appetites for power. We have appetites for money. We have appetites for sex, for glory. When you think of the the things that even the world recognizes as the dangers that come from men who get powerful, what you realize is that it's their appetites that they serve that are so destructive. In other words, that idolatry leads to destruction, to death. What else does it say about them? It says that their glory is their shame. Now, again, how could how can you read that without thinking about gay pride parades? How can you think about that in our culture today without thinking of people who have utterly and totally rejected God, who hate him and are, who are explicit about that, and who glory in that, in their shame? That is very applicable. And yet, remember that what we're actually focusing on here is people who claim to be followers of Christ. And so, in this case, it's probably a better comparison to think about the church in Corinth that was glorying, it was very proud of how tolerant they were of sin in their midst. A sexual sin, a terrible sexual sin at that. You see the danger there. The church in Corinth is beginning to be like these men. Right? Now, Paul doesn't say anyone who does that is an enemy of the cross of Christ. The church of Corinth is, you know, Beelzebub. He sees that Christians can fall into these sins, and his very point with the Philippians, just like for us, is that we would be warned against falling into that. That we would see the places where we do fall into it. You can see this very often in people who have mixed up doctrine, that have preaching of the basic tenets of the gospel, that there is forgiveness of sin in Jesus Christ, that his blood pays, and yet who then bring in an admixture, a poisonous, toxic substance that obliterates the truth of that gospel. And so, when you mix the gods of this world, when you mix idolatry in with the worship of God, you don't end up with worship of the true God. When when you throw all your gold into the fire and out pops a calf, and you claim that you're worshiping God, you're not actually worshiping God, though you still have the Ten Commandments. (laughs) Right? 
And so it is with the gospel that, yeah, you can, you can have that, but when you start mixing in the God of tolerance, while you're worshiping the one true God, you're not worshiping the one true God anymore. You've thrown your gold into the fire and out pops this golden calf. Out pops your commitment to the gods of this world, the gods of the nations, and they are idols. And then, to be very proud of that, and to say, I don't know what's wrong with those like Paul, who speak so negatively and so judgmentally and and so condemningly, but God is love. And is that true or is it not true? It's true. How much truth is in this and yet how poisonous is the message? How destructive is the outcome of those who have set their minds on earthly things? And then what does he say? He says not to imitate them. Now, I've gotten done describing not being like them, but I want you to recognize that there is a, there is a path of beginning to imitate them that is not exactly the same as being like them. Or maybe it's just earlier in the path. But regardless, I want you to see that if you are going to imitate Paul, who has described throwing himself wholeheartedly with all of his energy and all of his time and with a dedicated commitment into what? Pursuing the prize. Running after Jesus Christ. If you're going to be an imitator of him, that means that you are not going to be like an awful lot of other people. Because there are a lot of people who are enemies of the cross of Christ. There are a lot of people whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who have set their minds on earthly things. And if you just do what everybody else does, Guess what? You're imitating the wrong people. You have to pick your role models carefully. And if you don't have a role model, if you don't have an intention of trying to figure out what Paul was like and what, how, how he, he extends it, of course, because Paul isn't alive today, right? What he actually says is, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. So he says to you all, you should find the people and observe them who are walking according to the model that Paul lays out. Observe them and what? Then be like them. But if you're not observing anybody, if you're not seeking to pursue that, if you're not giving yourself to it with energy, 
then you're not being like Paul. And then you are simply living your life day to day. You're not pressing on toward the goal of Jesus Christ. And you're not paying attention to who your company is. And bad company will corrupt good morals. It's the opposite of pressing on toward the goal of Christ Jesus. To wallow lethargically, doing the bare minimum. Always more aware of what your earthly appetites are than of what you're doing to seek Jesus Christ and his glory. And you see how easy it is to do that, right? And this is why the warning comes in because it's at that time that those people who promise that you can have your cake and eat it too becomes tempting, very, very tempting. Because you look at your life, you, you, you have somebody like Paul thrust in front of your face and you look and you compare and you begin to see what it would cost you, what it's going to take, how much work it's going to be for you to be like him. And then you have another guy and he's like, Paul's a little bit of an extremist, you understand. And so there's this other way. You don't have to go quite so hard. You don't have to worry quite so much about what it's going to mean for your life. There's this way of following God without suffering. That begins without working hard. I'm liking this. (laughs) And that's when, having lived day by day, without care, without concern, without picking a role model, without observing, without following, without seeking to run after him as he runs after Jesus Christ, without a daily concern and recognition and remembrance that our citizenship is not here on earth, but is in heaven, as he says earlier. Gradually allowing our appetites to be the thing that we go from thing to thing to thing serving. Consumed by the earthly. But if we are Christians and we are citizens of heaven already, then being a citizen means your concerns are for that kingdom and that king. And there's no dual citizenship. Your citizenship is in heaven. You are an alien, a stranger, a sojourner, a wanderer here on earth. And so let us not become like the citizens of earth. Let's pray.